Rude is recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Kanyankahaga people, a place which has long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst nations. Hi, I'm Daniela. I'm Michael. I'm Barbara. And I'm Emily. And this is Rude, a podcast where we push back. So... Now that we're doing this episode, I have to ask. What's that? Because of what we're going to be talking about, I think we need to be able to hold people. So how can we make surveillance sexy? Ooh. Well, I think surveillance is already so sexy that we're, all of us are clicking on stupid quiz on Facebook and agreeing to give all of our personal information in exchange. Those quizzes are terrible. (laughs) (laughs) What type of bread are you? They get us all. And somehow, somehow we think it's worth it. (laughs) Yeah, to just give everything up to find out (laughs) what the answer to that question is. Danielle, what kind of bread are you? I I would like to be sourdough. I think I'm a marble rye. Good one. (laughs) So what are we talking about today, though, for real? (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about the changing landscape of activism. Cambridge Analytica. The dark web. Cybersecurity. Big data. Artificial intelligence. Net neutrality. Whoa, that was a lot of buzzwords, but all of this tech is having real consequences on the ways we interact with each other and how democracies operate. It's also changing how activists do their work. So in this episode, we set out to answer the question... As all of these disruptions and all this tech is changing our social fabric, Mm. we want to know, how is activism adapting? And to start us off, I'm curious about us. Some of us have been doing different types of movement organizing, activism work, and stuff like that. And I'm wondering, how has tech featured in it, in your work? Well, I can definitely speak to that. I used to work with Black Lives Matter in Vancouver. And a lot of our planning and public engagement work was done over Facebook. So that was where we would kind of build our platform, Mm -hmm. get a lot of interaction, people coming to our events, organize and plan stuff. And it was, we did it on Facebook because that was just such an accessible network. Everybody's already there. All you have to do is go make some events and write some things that people can engage with. And because Black Lives Matter was such a recognizable term, it's almost become a brand. So Mm. people Mm -hmm. were so ready to interact, whether they were mad about something, which was most of it, or if people were really supportive, they would share and um, would be able to reach a ton of people. It was really great in some respects. On the other hand, we did get (laughs) a lot of hate, a lot of trolls, and sometimes even death threats. That was fun. Uh, And not to mention when the cops actually started tracking us because it was so easy on Facebook. Right. And that was a time. I'll tell you about that a little bit later. Okay. Uh, Stick around. Yeah, stick around. I think an important angle to consider here is if activists are being tracked, but then we are trying to organize for something, how does that undermine our movements and our ability to actually make change? You know, that's a really good question. And I was wondering the same thing, as was the team. So we sat down with Dimitri, everyone, and he founded an organization called Equality, Equality.ie. They do pretty awesome work, and they're basically a bunch of hackers, coders, tech people who defend human rights organizations from quote-unquote bad hackers. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, anyways, we will let Dimitri tell you more about it. How would you qualify yourself? Are you a hacker? Are you an activist? Who are you? Well, I think I'm Dimitri, first and foremost. Of course. Uh, immigrant from Russia, uh, 10 years here in Canada. I run an organization called Equality, which I founded more or less here when I settled in Montreal. We develop um, software and services to help promote and defend human rights on the internet. We deal with issues such as internet anonymity, or what is sometimes known as the dark web or the deep web on the internet. We deal with issues of cyber attack and data analytics. We deal with issues of encrypted communications. We develop protocols and standards for encrypting communications on the internet. So originally I'm from the Soviet Union. Uh, my family, my father, my mother and I defected from the Soviet Union. My father was an investigative journalist. Um, so that kind of laid my sort of childhood impressions to some extent. I grew up in Australia, um, studied in IT, was kind of bored by the whole industry in the field and left uh, to travel as is a kind of a common rite of passage for an Australian youth. Um, whilst traveling, several years later, I stumbled upon a conference hosted by a human rights organization whose mission was to defend human rights activists around the world. So not human rights kind of per se, but the rights of the activists on the ground um, fighting to defend the rights of others, basically. And it was in Dublin, and it really kind of identified uh, a purpose for my nomadic soul. Uh, and the only way I could be helpful to them uh, was with my knowledge of IT at that moment. So that's what I started doing, helping them with their IT. And quite soon into the job, as I also spoke Russian and was able to converse with activists that they were working with in Russian-speaking countries, I realized that some of the things which I know about IT, about the internet, uh, is incredibly important to the activists that this organization is working with. And the lack of that knowledge and skill is uh, leading them to, to be persecuted, basically, to have their campaigns broken up, to have their you know, email addresses hacked into, to have their communications intercepted and then presented later to them you know, during interrogation and so on. So I started to try and relay some of this knowledge that I knew onto this audience. Um, that turned into uh, walkthroughs, manuals, guides books, curricula for training, networks of trainers. Eventually, I left and decided to concentrate specifically on this field. The surveillance industry, and I will use just that very generic term, is too sophisticated for you to actually be able to carry out your activities independently and uh, without consequence. Right. So ignorance is not an option, basically. I don't think so. In terms of your organization, Equality, what concretely, what, what services do you offer? What do you do to help the human rights movement? Um, our biggest project at the moment is called Deflect. So Deflect is an infrastructure uh, we have created that protects websites from cyber attack. So if you have a website 
i.e. you are an activist organization that isn't only defined by its Facebook page, um, but you have a website uh, that is often attacked. Um, we take it out under our shield, under our protection. Um, we can host it in some uh, in uh, some s situations as well. And we also help these organizations um, by analyzing the attacks that have been levied against them. Sometimes there's interesting information in those attacks, and sometimes that information on your attackers helps your advocacy. And we can turn a bad situation of an attack into a good situation whereby the attack doesn't succeed because deflect is in front of the attack uh, but not only that, your website becomes more popular because you can publish news of the attack that gets picked up by others and so on. The next challenge that needs to be overcome is that of this proverbial activist we've been talking about in actually adopting new methods, new technology, and raising their level of awareness, not only their own level of awareness, but the level of awareness inside their collectives inside their networks of better operations, of not always choosing the easiest path. If you're going to organize some sort of spontaneous action and you're going to organize this on Facebook, you know, you need to be cognizant of the fact that that action and the people associated with that action and the people who are associated with the people who are associated with that action will be recorded forever. So I think the future of activism involves the acceptance, the recognition and the acceptance of the current state of things on the internet with technology in general, and the modification of how you're using these tools in cognizance of that. On the internet, in technology as well, you might need to be an, an activist user in order to be an activist in the physical world. So Dimitri just said that we should all be more educated on privacy and we should all be activists, actually, on privacy issues. And that brings us to the question that he was raising. Do movement organizers have a responsibility towards their members? Do they have to educate their members? And if they don't, is that irresponsible about these privacy concerns? Like, what's the protocol? I think to some extent we should. But I also want to push back on this notion that everyone should become an e encryption expert or coder. Mm. That's not necessarily the case, right? Probably there should be a base level of understanding so people can engage with you know, some level of awareness. But let's be real. People who are properly protected online are those who legit build their own computers. And that cannot be the threshold for everybody. All right. So organizations like Equality, they're the ones that should, we should be seeking out to support our movements and help educate us on the essentials. Exactly. And we can't let all, you know, the fear of tech stop us from using tools that can mobilize masses in numbers that were previously inaccessible, you know? Right. So I just think there's just too much potential to let that happen. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I had a weird experience when Vice released an article in August last year, mm. um, right after I'd wrapped up the work I was doing with Black Lives Matter. I say work, but it was definitely volunteer. It took up all my time. Um, and I moved to Montreal. Laborious, nonetheless. Yes, extremely. Oh, my God, I'm still recovering. 
but through an Access to Information Act, or whatever those things are called, Access to Information Request, mm -hmm. they were able to find out that the Canadian police were actively surveilling Black Lives Matter Vancouver. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> I mean, the wow. police, right. <laughs> come on, they surveil when more than two black people are together. Preach. But like really, actually on Facebook. And they were surveilling you through Facebook? Yeah, they're following our social media or something. Probably still are, I should be careful. <laughs> but I was kind of stunned on the one hand, but also rolling my eyes so hard. Because what black activist actually working towards social justice work isn't being watched? Mm. And I was also a bit stunned because really we were just a bunch of queer and trans black kids. Most of us were in school, mm -hmm. uh, just kind of talking about what we, what talking about inclusion and what that really means, not exactly. this free for all for everybody to be involved in whatever, mm -hmm. but actually making space for marginalized groups, marginalized voices to be heard. Anyway, so the networks we had online made it actually really easy for the cops to track us. But it also gave us access to tens of thousands of people who were paying attention to what we were saying. Hmm. And I think our next speaker can shine some light on the opportunities available through online organizing. We wanted to talk to someone who has worked on campaigns that reach millions and millions of people. Right. Jess Morales Roquetto led digital strategy for the Clinton campaign. We found her insights on digital organizing and strategizing to be fascinating. She talks about bringing about better results and democratizing social movements. We'll let you hear directly from her. I'm Jess morales Riquetto, uh, the political director at the National Domestic Workers Alliance and the chair of our immigration campaign, um, We Belong Together, which is the feminist campaign for immigration reform. Welcome to the show. So what drives you to do the work that you do? Um, I think of myself as an activist um, who uh, really straddles the place where social movements and electoral campaigns come together. I, I believe deeply in the work that social movements do and believe deeply in that you need to elect the right leaders to support the work that those those movements, you know, bring about. So it's like I think about this in relation to Black Lives Matter all the time. Imagine if there was policymakers at a federal level who were ready to put the demands of Black Lives Matter into practice. And so I have in, you know, in pursuit of that goal, I have been um, digital organizing director for Hillary Clinton in 2016. I worked for Barack Obama um both at Organizing for America, which was um, part of, uh, you know, his, when he, we weren't campaigning for president, and then also um, uh, for his, his re-election campaign in 2012. I've also worked at the AFL-CIO, America's Labor Movement, um, and my particular specialty um, has been in digital organizing, um, and like just the way that this work is shaping how we engage in social movements, both creating them and sustaining them, but then also how we engage in political campaigns with candidates and with campaigns themselves is really, is seismic. Mm -hmm. And so how have you seen digital tech be used effectively to organize and mobilize groups? So on the Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign, um, every volunteer, almost every volunteer would sign up 
at HillaryClinton.com. So their first touch point was a digital touch point because then we could ask them to follow us on social media. Um, and then they would hear about Hillary's policy plans on our Facebook and our Twitter. Um, maybe they would join our text message list and we would give them like updates from debates or events. Um, and so I think that like in some ways people get confused sometimes about digital organizing because it's both communications and organizing. Mm -hmm, right. And so all sorts of activists and organizers use social media. Can you talk to us a bit about that? So a lot of times, you know, the, the best, most important digital organizing platform is Facebook. And you're at the mercy of the Facebook algorithm. And the Facebook algorithm is not designed to get people to take action. It's designed to like sell more ads. Ultimately, on these platforms, we're trying to create community. But the platforms are not trying to create community. Usually, they're trying to sell ads. And so that's a real tension that we get against because the kind of content that you need to show up at the top of people's algorithms is not like sign up to volunteer, right? It's all kinds of other things. And, and you'll see that. Like, that's how you get, like, all these political brands, right, that'll be like, happy, like, puppy day. And it's like, why is this elected official talking about puppies? And they're talking about puppies because they're trying to get in your feed. And it's actually really important for them to get in your feed when there's puppies. Because tomorrow they're going to want to talk about the tax scam. And if they can't get in your feed and you never see all this information, they have to compete with the puppies, Right. And like tax scam puppies, like for sure I want to talk about puppies. <laughs> <laughs> so they have more work to do on the platform beyond, you know, sort of these measures that they've taken. And in fact, I would say these measures that they've taken are actually sort of really cursory measures. I also think that this is partly how campaigns can actually become inclusive or more inclusive than they currently are. Most electoral campaigns do not use micro-targeting to really think about how to make a, a message that is like actually targeted to those communities, i.e. African-American voters hearing about African-American issues from African-American surrogates, like mm. that kind of like data. Like I, I think people think that this happens, but it, it, not at the level that it could, certainly. Mm -hmm. And so what are some of the threats of these digital tools? So I am obsessed with what I call digital voter suppression. Mm. On October 30th, 2016, the Trump campaign is on the record that their digital operation is a voter suppression operation. They even say that that operation is targeted at specific groups, African-Americans, um, white liberals, and young women. Maybe the only like real program of a campaign is voter suppression. You also have collusion with a foreign actor in a democratic government, and in a democratic election. And all of it is online, completely. It is a totally a digital strategy. When you look at what has been released of the Russia ads, those ads are almost, like I think a third of them or something like that, the subject is race. Almost wow. entire, it's about race. And the reason that I say that is, then what you have here is, you know, it's, it's frankly not a new Republican strategy. Republicans have been trying to suppress the vote of people of color since they have gotten the right to vote. But what they're doing is taking this into the 21st century. And the problem with that is you don't have to release every negative campaign ad. Facebook didn't before this, you know, put on um, who the ads were sponsored by. So you couldn't see that, you know, this page that they had made, Black Lives Matter page, 
was actually sponsored by the Russian government. And like, hmm, why is the Russian government like sponsoring Black Lives Matter pages, right? I truly believe that this is one of the most biggest threats to our democracy because platforms are not incentivized to move against this kind of work. And this is big business, you know? The Clinton campaign spent a billion dollars on their campaign. The Trump campaign outpaced um, Clinton spending two to one. So, you know, I don't, I can't remember exactly how much we spent on, on digital ads, but, you know, you could potentially imagine in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And that's just the campaigns proper. That's not all the IEs, all the, you know, PACs, et cetera. So, you know, you're talking about billion dollar business here just from the political advertising. Right. There's no incentive for platforms to change completely. So what do we do now? How do we move forward? I mean, I'm slightly a biased source here, but I actually do think digital organizing is a really key piece of this. And it's partly because what digital organizing has allowed to happen in social movements and electoral campaigns is to democratize the way that people can engage with campaigns, right? And so what previous to this would be considered like a small niche issue can become something a candidate has to respond to if you can get it trending on Twitter, right? Like more civil society organizations need to invest in digital organizing. What we see is a lot of organizations investing in digital communications, which is not the same thing as digital organizing. Digital organizing requires folks to, um, you know, tools for people to use, actions for people to take. It's not just sharing on social media. And um, what we see here in the United States is a number of civil rights organizations you know, I would say have invested in digital communications and probably don't even know what digital organizing really is. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So, uh, but I want to go back quickly. You encouraged organizations to organize digitally. To what extent do organizations have a responsibility to protect their constituents from cyber threats? So I think like if you're giving out your data online, you have already made somewhat of a choice that you are okay with data being tracked. On the other hand, I do think that people can be careless with what they're sharing and who and who they're um, and who they're engaging with, right? So I think it's important for people to look like: Are you getting a friend request from someone you don't know? If you don't know them, like, why are you saying yes to them? Like seeing pictures of your grandkids and also understanding who your political opinions are, right? Are or or if you are saying yes to that, like you should make that be intentional about that choice. But I don't actually think that the average user has so much of responsibility as campaigns and companies and platforms. That's where the challenge really is, is in this like aggregated data. Wow, Jess shared so much critical information in that interview. Mm -hmm. I was particularly drawn to her comments about electing officials who could bring the demands of social movements into real policy. Some social <laughs> I think a lot of people have questioned whether or not elected officials would actually implement the policy platforms of groups like Black Lives Matter. I mean, well, when it's BLM, I feel like it's kind of a separate oh, yeah. issue. Oh, yes, of course. It, it's too too militant. Oh, God. <laughs> too angry, too rude. Hey. Rude. Podcast.com. Rude. <laughs> 
And you know, when I think about my own context, which is Kenya, I realize how I've always viewed anyone working in activism for whatever cause as being in complete binary opposition to many of our elected officials. Right. Especially because so much activism revolves around questioning government spending, and more specifically, how much the government is spending on paying elected officials. So you know they're never going to be on the same page about that, right? Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder, how should movements actually interact with policymakers? How, how can they build trust? Hmm. That question of trust is so huge and so loaded as well, in a way, um, because political parties and social movements have to interact with each other in a way or another, uh, and they always have, but rarely this interaction has been a good one and a positive one. Most of the time it's riddled with power dynamics that make it very difficult and frustrating. There's always the risk for social movements of being co-opted, and that threat um, is often Um, very real. And electoral politics and political parties can only do so much at the end of the day for social movements because, and especially in the U.S., they're driven by money. Right. Right. That's exactly what, like Facebook. I mean, what Jess emphasized really resonated in that regard. She said Facebook is fundamentally designed to optimize ad revenue. It's not about fostering community or civic engagement. I mean, Sure, Facebook has made changes to their privacy policies, but like she said, they're not enough. And yet we rely on it, right? Yeah. So how do we move forward? Where does this leave us in terms of privacy and based on what Dimitri said, mass mobilization through social media? So are we staying on Facebook? It's interesting to think of the way governments and corporations have kind of destroyed all the privacy that citizens had. I know that some governments are battling questions around a person's right to be forgotten, which is mind-blowing because a decade ago, we maybe were not thinking about that, you know? And it seems like the average citizen in the past could disappear or exist without leaving too much of a paper trail. But now that's just impossible. Yes, uh, in a way, but also to be frank, this naive trust in the government and freedom to disappear is something that some communities never actually had. You know, government use of data to control population goes way back. You know, you can think mandatory census in colonial governments. Mm. Think the Indian Act in Canada. Think even Nazi Germany. Yeah, and this happened in apartheid South Africa as well, because, you know, Canada was the blueprint for South Africa's ways of controlling the, quote, native population in Bantustans, which were the reserves for black Africans and also in the past system that they implemented. The surveillance system was always there as well for activists fighting those systems. You know, even MLK has his phone line tapped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? All the same colonial bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> True, but doing this work, seriously, doing this work has always included risks, um, but it's worth it because of the importance of the work. So in that sense, this fear of being surveilled is not new for everyone, but some who had not been impacted before are starting to feel it now. So this conversation of privacy is entering the mainstream. I think we need to remember that just because we can doesn't mean we should. Like just because we can track people's data doesn't mean that we always should track people's data. We should have more oversight on private companies, but we should also have governmental oversight. And right now we have neither. So Dan, also nobody else call her that, Dan and Emily, (laughs) I'm curious where what we've discussed has left you with regards to your work. 
Hmm. That's a tough question. Yeah. I think that we do have to go to where the people are. Mm-hmm. And these days, everybody, bar some, but most people are on Facebook. And Social media generally, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so we know that it's just feeding into mapping who is who, who's going to what event, who mm-hmm. knows who. So suddenly getting off social media, getting off Facebook or getting off Twitter, whatever, is in itself a red flag because mm. of how often we do use those platforms. So it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. But I took a break from Facebook last year. How did that go for you? Nobody cared. <laughs> what did that do to your self-esteem? You know what I Nobody love? Noticed. I love it when people Aww. when people come back and they make a big announcement. They're like, "So been gone for three months." Like, right. oh, no one noticed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's definitely there's some of that, but honestly, just all of these conversations about security and surveillance were honestly why I took a big step back from organizing and being so public online this year mm-hmm. was because there's a lot of access and power, like mm-hmm. we've talked about, to being able to galvanize all these people and do something for the cause, or at least look like you are online. <laughs> right. But what is the real cost is a question I have, because it really affected my mental, emotional health. There were threats to my safety, my friend's safety, and you're just constantly under surveillance. I don't know. I feel like the cops would probably do better to surveil all the white supremacist movements that are growing, but mm-hmm. I don't know if that implicates them. Cool. But oh, anyway, I, no, no, I, <laughs> I really want to know how we do organizing in smarter ways and how right. we do organizing in better ways that aren't so damaging. Well, if we just listen and learn from communities who have been dealing with surveillance for decades and centuries even, um, perhaps there's something there that we could learn and we would feel more empowered in spite of the recent technologies. Um, I'm seeing this because, for example, I can think of black communities who have used codes to communicate amongst themselves in ways that would not be picked up or understood. Um, We can do the same thing online and I think if we do, we can find ways of messing with algorithms. You know, it's not the answer to everything looking in the past like that, but I think it's definitely a start. Mm -hmm. And I think to start answering that question, we really need more education. Like even after this episode, I still feel like there is more that I don't know compared to what I do know about privacy and social media. (laughs) Honestly, about everything. (laughs) That's, that's, That's my life. So I think movement leaders and influencers in the social justice space should be contributing to spreading more information about engaging in ways that are safer. Maybe it's through tech literacy and privacy workshops for movement leaders or using tech organizations like Dimitri's. I think we really have to keep our eyes open for opportunities to get more educated. Ooh, education for the win. Winning. Uh, If you know any organizations or work for an organization that helps people like us understand and educate ourselves about all these buzzwords, hit us up. We'd love to promote you and tell people about you. And it would be super helpful for anybody who is already engaged in activism to maybe have some resources available that we can stick up on our website. There are a couple things that we didn't get to cover in this episode, including net neutrality and the dark web. The dark web. (laughs) Please keep your eyes peeled on our podcast channel.
channel for an additional snippet from Dimitri's interview that we couldn't fit into this episode covering specifically the dark web. Okay, and that is a wrap, pals. See you next time. My name is Michael. I'm Barbara. I'm Daniela. And I'm Emily. The views expressed by our interviewees do not necessarily reflect those of our hosts or our sponsors. We want to thank our team, Kara, Nico, and Amaya, as well as Simon Panrucker for the jams once again. And this is Rude. Thank you.